fighting from a left or progressive point of view, the election was was a big blow. So how do you respond? How do you respond? Do you protest? Do you give money to organizations? Do you write? Do you become a politician? So I think everyone has a different responses of how they want to uh, contribute or uh, make a statement. And I'm a writer, so I'm going to attack the world in the current situation in my in my work. Um, it's sort of uh, up to everyone to sort of figure out what they are sort of called to do, you know, in times like this. And so I'm a writer, right. so I'll write. Kevin Larimer, Editor-in-Chief of Poets and Writers. And I'm Melissa Falavino, the Senior Editor of Poets and Writers. And this is Ampersand, the Poets and Writers Podcast. In this episode, we will be talking with Colson Whitehead, winner of the National Book Award, about inspiration and his latest novel, The Underground Railroad. We'll also be hearing from some of our 2016 debut poets, including Ocean Buong, Sophia Sinclair, and Tommy Pico. And so much more. So stick around. Inspiration issue is here. It's our seventh annual inspiration issue. It is, and it's always a really um, it's always a really fun issue to put together because I feel like of all of our themed issues, um, this one really comes together in a different way. You know, we sort of loosen the uh, editorial reins a little bit and um, allow the section to grow organically, mm-hmm. uh, which I think makes sense for inspiration. Uh, and it was interesting, this issue um, in particular, the, the essays started coming in and they were um, they were pretty dark. Uh, and this was even before the election, mm-hmm. uh, which of course has many people feeling rather dark, mm-hmm. uh, pretty dark view of the future for a lot of people. So that was an interesting coincidence um, because, you know, the, the writers uh, in this section are really confronting some pretty difficult dark material. So we titled the section, The Darkness and the Light. And in the introduction to the section, we tried to acknowledge that uh, inspiration isn't um, this sort of sense of divine intervention. You know, it's not always this sort of happy, warm, fuzzy feeling Mm -hmm. uh, that I think some people are a little uncomfortable with when Mm -hmm. talking about inspiration, because that's not really the reality of it. Um, you know, sometimes it can be, it can be dark and it can be heavy and, um, we're kind of witnessing this now. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, we're, a lot of people are, are looking around and seeing what's happened, uh, with the election and feeling like the world is in this very kind of desperate place. Mm -hmm. And what's been inspiring is to see some of our writers, um, sort of stand up and say, this is when we need to make art more than ever, um, so uh, sort of in that, um, in that vein, um, our special section is confronting these kind of dark topics. Right. So we start things off with Frank Burris, uh, who is a contributing editor, and he talks about uh, depression. Uh, and he discusses uh, James Pennebaker uh, and his research into self-affirmation and expressive writing. Mm-hmm. 
We also have an essay by Melissa Phoebos, who's an essayist and memoirist, um, and she is talking about writing about trauma, specifically uh, in terms of um, allowing yourself to write about trauma, and even more particularly in in terms of, of women who write about trauma and how that can sort of be seen as, you know, somehow less than, like writing about yourself is navel-gazing. Um, and so uh, Melissa Phoebos is arguing that actually it takes a tremendous amount of strength and courage and hard work to write about trauma and can actually make you a better writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jay Baron Nicorvo uh, talks about developing a character in his new novel, which is coming out this spring, um, and basing that character on a real-life person uh, who he didn't like too much, uh, and through the process of building this character, came to you know a, a sense of empathy and, and redemption. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also have Nancy M. Williams, who writes about how a concussion really revolutionized her writing practice. Um, she suffered a concussion in a car accident. And um, the piece is about her um, really struggling to try to get back to writing and how she was able to develop kind of really a whole new way of, of approaching writing um, and writing in her, in her head rather than sitting down at a computer. And then we have a piece by Kevin Simmons, um, which is about his creating a theater piece inspired by the murder of Emmett Till and the legacy of racism. Um, and finally, we have a piece by Rita Banerjee about Rasa theory, which um, I'm just going to go ahead and use her words to describe what Rasa theory is. She says, Rasa is a shot to the heart. It's a festering wound. It's the mind at unrest, and it is nobody's captive. It can be dangerous. It's the moment where you loose yourself and loosen and find in your body the first stirrings of emotion. And of course, we have our 12th annual look at debut poets. Uh, We have 10 poets, uh, amazing poets, who published their first books in 2016. We do, and they are Ari Banyas, Ocean Vuong, Yana Prickroll, Carolina Abade, Solmaz Sharif, Philip B. Williams, Eleanor Chai, Justin Baining, Sophia Sinclair, and Tommy Pico. So they recorded some of their poems for us, um, and you can find those recordings in our extended interview online. And we are also going to listen to a few of them right now. This is Ocean Vuong, and I'll be reading from my book, Night Sky with Exit Wounds. Telemachus. Like any good son, I pull my father out of the water drag him by his hair through white sand, his knuckles carving a trail the waves rush in to erase. Because the city beyond the shore is no longer where we left it. Because the bombed cathedral is now a cathedral of trees. I kneel beside him to see how far I might sink. Do you know who I am, Ba? But the answer never comes. The answer is the bullet hole in his back, brimming with seawater. He is so still, I think he could be anyone's father, found the way a green bottle 
might appear at a boy's feet containing a year he has never touched. I touch his ears. No use. I turn him over to face it. The cathedral in his sea-black eyes. The face, not mine, but one I will wear to kiss all my lovers goodnight. The way I seal my father's lips with my own and begin this faithful work of drowning. This is Sophia Sinclair, and I'll be reading from my collection, Cannibal. Portrait of Eve as the Anaconda I, too, am gathering the vulgarity of botany, the eye and its nuclei for mischief. Of man redacted I came, am coming, fasting, starving, carved myself a selfish idol, its shell unsuitable. I, twice discarded, arrived Thornside, and soon outgrew his reptilian sheen, a fine specimen. Let me have it, something in violet, splayed in bird lime, legs an exposed anemone against jailbait August, its x-ray sky. This light, a gorgon slick, polygamous doom and God again, calling much too late, who aches to stick an ache in my unmentionable. His primal plant remains elusive, wildfire and pathogen, blood not of human flesh there in his beard. How I am hot for it. Call me murderous, a glowing engine time to blow. Watch it go with unjealousy shadow. Let me have it. This maidenhead primeval schemes what ovule of cruel invention, the Venus trap, the menses. And how many ways to announce this guilt? Whore's nest of ague, supernova, wild stigmata, womb. I boast of vogue sacrosanctum, engorging shored pornographies, the cells unruly strain, rogue empire multiplying for a thousand virile thousand years, my wings pinned wide in parthenogenesis, such miraculous display. This is Tommy Pico, and I am about to read a section from my book-length poem, IRL. Here we go. Is this ad relevant to you? We would like to enhance your ad-watching experience. You're a garbage person if you can't take a good photo. Is the underlying message of gay culture in Brooklyn the concept of fame in the United States? I hate having my picture taken. I say to this photographer at this party because every damn party has to be photographed, otherwise it doesn't happen. And because the parties are so boring, if people weren't posing, there'd be nothing to do but drink. It's too loud for convos and they don't let you dance in the city. He says, oh, come on. And I say calmly, 
No. And he asks, is this an Indian thing? Like, does a pick steal your soul or something? I'm going to crumple him up in the palm of my hand, but I guess it is an Indian thing in the sense that I'm Indian and I'm doing this thing. Posing for pics is like not being able to stare into the sun for too long, but kind of the opposite. A blank black lens crystallizes the uncertainty within. Is this good or bad is a sentence in a fight and I hate confrontation. Why do I have to take sides? Switzerland has the strictest privacy laws on the planet and I have the flyest tank tops in America. Somehow I feel good about it. In Kumyai, there's a concept for in between. Not knowing how to smile. How you look, bent over a book, waking up on either coast feels the exact same and sometimes you wake up not knowing how old you are and if Johnny is down the hall in a robe making eggs. Future leaders are whooshed away from the tribe in a sort of boreal way to feel the greater world, stone hills, etc. This is back in the day. This in-between is like gangbusters for Muse. It's like catnip to muse. It's a throb of light in between the two of us, just the two of us. You and I, I rub muse my neck. I'm clenching my jaw for like 20 minutes waiting for this damn photographer to take this damn pic. In between Brooklyn and Kumyai, that it has a word, even if the word is lost, even if the word doesn't exist, even if I'm lying to you. It's breath tethering. It opens a throb of light inside me. I don't have the option of keeping my God alive by keeping her name secret because the word for her is gone. Keeping secrets is not possible. So I give everything away. I'm out here all alone trying to wad up enough obsessions to replace her and with it, my God, I never got to know her. But strangely, sometimes when I'm cry laughing at that scene in Still Magnolias, or I can't sing the part in the Beyonce song at karaoke, where the music gets all soft and I try to croon oh baby kiss me Maude has to take the mic because the feeling gets bigger than my voice and the feeling I think it's her my god's shadow walking down a hallway away but like I said I lost my voice and I don't know her name maybe it's Washi or Pemu says this Claire audience to me apropos of nothing but I'll never know for sure so I can't call after her and then I'm like crying at a Beyonce song are you kidding me teeps get it together B my dad grows his hair long Black waves cascade down his back because knives crop the ceremony of his mother's hair at the Indian boarding school. I cut mine in mourning for the old life, but I grow my poems long. A dark reminder on white pages, a new ceremony. I grab the mic back from Maud, flip for a new song to flash across the karaoke screen. Fist breath low and ready. And Jane's is finally following me back on Instagram, so I take a somewhat risque selfie, send a DM, and right after message, oops, oh my god, I meant to send that to someone else. Gosh, so embarrassed. Oops. And he responds with a pic of his computer screen, his phone number on it. So we text. And he's like, come over. And I'm like, do you have AC? And he says, yes. And I just straight up drop the mic and leave.
So Melissa, you went to the National Book Awards. I did, and it was a really inspiring night. Talk about a collection of writers getting up and talking about the urgency and importance of making art right now. I mean, it was really fantastic. It was a really diverse collection of writers, and it really was inspiring. I think a lot of people were walking around in a fog before that event, and uh, myself included, and I got there, and it was just like... uh, kick in the pants. It was like an awakening. And one of the winners, of course, was Colson Whitehead, who received the National Book Award in fiction. Um, and toward the end of his acceptance speech, uh, he he had a sort of mantra for everybody um, to live by now and in the future. And he said, be kind to everybody, make art and fight the power, which he then got a standing ovation and everybody yeah. lost their minds. It was pretty of course, awesome. Of course. Uh, Love Colson. He's actually been on our cover twice, uh, once back in 2001. Um, I spoke with him back then, um, which was sort of at the beginning of his amazing career. Uh, we did a piece about um, his second novel, John Henry Days. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, he was on the cover in 2014 uh, with his agent, Nicole Raji. Mm-hmm. So I was um, delighted to have another opportunity to speak with Colson, and I called him up and we talked about uh, his award-winning novel, The Underground Railroad. So, Colson, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. And I just want to say congratulations on the really well-deserved, critical, and popular acclaim of your eighth book, The Underground Railroad. Uh, thanks, Chad. Uh, yeah, it's been a crazy couple months. <laughs> yeah, I would say. I mean, the number one bestseller, the Oprah pick, the National Book Award winner. How does how does it feel? Uh, I'm still <laughs> I'm still processing it. You know, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I was thinking back to uh, that first day when you know we did the surprise launch of the book and. The first mm-hmm. reviews started coming in um, from the Times and Washington Post, and uh, people, you know, sort of got out there, uh, got out there, and it's just been the, you know, the start of a really sort of lovely four months. Um, obviously, uh, things don't usually go that well, so I'm definitely right. trying to enjoy it. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, considering some of the things that we've talked about in the past and other remarks I've read in other interviews you've given, uh, you know, you told uh, Boris Kochka of New York Magazine that, you know, you're you're used to other people not caring about your other books. Um, I assume this kind of reception wasn't expected. Um, you know, when when did you realize you had something really special on your hands? Um, well, I think actually when I, when I first handed it in to my editor and agent last, uh, I guess it would be last December, and just the way you know the way the way they talked about it, you know, there's something different in their mm-hmm. voices, and then. I went out to booksellers really, really early in January, and they came back very enthusiastic. And so, really, which was really sort of building throughout the spring, and I sort of, you know, had an inkling that people were responding to it in a very yeah. sort of nice and unexpected way. <laughs> That's great. Um, and now, you know, I would I would imagine you have sort of the biggest platform of your career, you know, with Oprah and the the National Book Award, and and all in response to this, you know, remarkable book about race and freedom and the, the legacy of slavery and published in the era of Black Lives Matter. How, how are you managing the expectations that come along with having created such an effective work of art during this very specific time in the world? Oh, well, I mean, other people's expectations have nothing to do with me, really. There's other people's mm-hmm. expectations. So I'm just yeah. going to um, do what I usually do, which is kind of rest in between books and then figure out what the next story is and then start writing, uh, you know, next year. You know, the matter if the book goes well or goes poorly, you're always starting, you know, with the blank page again when you start a new book. So it just means that, you know, the same thing. Whenever I sit down and try to tackle the next idea, you know, it's sort of a blank slate. 
Right. Did, so Oprah isn't in your head? <laughs> she's no, here. no. She's in my she's yeah. in my phone book, but uh, <laughs> I won't call her. I won't dare call her. But you know, um, <laughs> right. That's right. about it. Um, so I, I read that you really had the germ of the idea for the Underground Railroad, you know, a, a literal locomotive transporting slaves under the ground and making stops, each subsequent chapter representing different responses to slavery, different states of American possibility, uh, way back in 2000, which was before you and I met for our Poets and Writers interview about John Henry Days. And I, I read at that time you felt you needed to wait to become a better writer before you could really do that idea justice. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, about, you know, the, the patience required to, to be a writer. Well, I think, you know, there are a few things um, where I was in terms of working. I, I was coming down off of a research-heavy book. I just didn't feel like doing research again. Um, I thought mm-hmm. the idea was really good and that if I waited, I might be able to really do it justice. And so mm-hmm. I, I think... Um, at least with me, you know, I have a couple ideas in, in the Brack Browns usually, and then some of them, you know, stick around and demand mm-hmm. to be addressed. And then, uh, you know, at least for me, there's like an in, sort of internal indicator that says, oh, this is the thing I should work on next, or I'm ready for this now. Right. A lot of times when I'm, you know, I feel I'm ready to start something and I'll have two ideas, basically whichever idea I end up thinking about more is the one I end up working on. And so there's sort of a natural yeah. weeding out process. And so... Um, not to be all mystical, but I, I think, you know, the, the, the book that, sound, that seems interesting, the book that seems compelling and challenging is the one that uh, I end up working on. And, you know, I mean, if, if you had pushed through 16 years ago writing this book, I imagine it would have been a very different book. I mean, you know, just with age and, and life experience and everything, it would be a very different situation. Sure, I sure. No, I mean, the, the characters would have been different and the emphasis mm-hmm. and the sentences. And so, you know, I've learned things by writing other books of how to, you know, do things more efficiently. I've gotten things out of my system. I'm not interested in writing the same kind of books I did 15 years ago. And so, and why would you? I mean, I think, I think anyone who, you know, I would hope that I'd be a little better and have different concerns at 47 than I did at, you know, 31. So. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know. Right. Uh, to say nothing, I mean, you have kids, you know, right? You have two young kids and, and uh, that, that tends to change uh, life outlook a little bit as well too, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, if you know, I was younger, I would I'd work during the day, and if I was really into the in a groove, I'd work at night, and so I was just working, you know, working until one a.m. and then getting up and starting over again. And obviously, now, you know, I pick up the kids from school and, and make dinner, and then I'm, you know, seven o'clock, I'm just on the couch with some wine and cooking <laughs> shows, and so, um, uh, you know, I, I'm more efficient when I'm working, and when I'm not, when when I'm uh, off the clock, I'm definitely off the clock. And then in terms of, you know, I, I just, at least in my case, uh, you know, becoming a parent and getting married mm-hmm. has made me a little more empathetic and I think less selfish. And so hopefully that enriches the work. And can, can you tell me a little bit about uh, your process um, writing? I mean, do, do you outline or, um, you know, I was talking to uh, Michael Chabon about his novel Moonglow for the last episode of the podcast. and. And he was saying he doesn't outline, and he kind of wishes that he did because it would save him <laughs> a lot of time. But uh, you can kind of tell he enjoys being surprised by the turns in the narrative. And in and your novel, it strikes me that it's a very different thing. Like, uh, it strikes me that, that, that you would be a, a writer who outlines. Is that is that right? Yeah, I mean, I definitely have to know the beginning and the end. And with this mm-hmm. book, you know, obviously I, had, I knew what, what all the different states would be like. Uh, it just seems like it's hard enough to find the right words each day 
it's beyond you know what's going to happen day to day. It seems twice as hard. So it's really just trying to make things easier on myself by knowing what happens next. Uh, but of right. course, you know, we start writing and characters develop their own voices and some of the situations become more or less important and get more or less space time on the page. You know, it's both, it's both knowing what the destination is, but then being open to varying the route uh, as you as you go along. And um, and I think with me, the most the more random part of this book is that there's a linear story of Cora, and then there are you know six sort of briefer um, biographical chapters that other characters get. And, and and all all along, I was you know wondering should Martin get his six pages or Ethel? What's more efficient, and where should they go? And so. In terms of the structural element, the things that moved around most were the biographical sections. And now this this book really does mark a uh, a departure in in tone and 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 style really from your previous books, um, which had this kind of you know slacker humor, which which I loved, but in uh, in sort of a style that uh, kind of connected to the you know kind of hyper spirit of the times, I suppose. Uh, and that's, that's really gone in the Underground Railroad, perhaps for obvious reasons considering the subject matter. But I'm wondering, you know, how do you account for that shift? Did you feel differently writing this book than your previous books? Or, Well, I mean, I think the voice of the book asserted itself early on, and I knew that was, it was the right voice, and so I stuck with mm-hmm. it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a historical novel, and I think you, you, you mm-hmm. picked the, the right tool for the job. And so... The voice of the first person voice of Sag Harbor is different from the first from the third person voice of Zone One, and mm-hmm. the different narrators I think uh, reflect different stories and psychologies of the characters. And so, in terms of humor, definitely I couldn't have the same sort of satirical satirical play or the pop culture jokes that I, you know I have in some other books. And so, you yeah. know, when I signed on, I knew that I couldn't do things the way I have done them in other books. And did you have um, specific readers who you really trust as you write it? Like, did you show this this novel to your editor before it was finished, or? Yeah, I mean, again, depending on the book and what I, what I need when I'm going along, I <laughs> right. show things, uh, you know, a lot, you know, chapter by chapter, or not at all until I'm done. With this one, I wrote the first hundred pages and thought I had um, a nice voice and momentum and, and established things, and I showed them to my. My wife, who's an agent, and I showed them to my agent mm-hmm. and my editor, and they all said, uh, you know, when can you finish it? And so, so that was uh, a thumbs up and allowed me to go to the next few thirds uh, without showing anybody anything. Winner of the 2016 National Book Award for Fiction is the Underground Railroad. Yeah, so this time last year, I was like finishing up the book, and it's like, don't mess up the 20 pages, Colson. Every day I'm like, only 19 pages ago, don't mess it up, Colson. And um, you never know, never know what's going to happen in a year. And now the book is out, and uh, I would never think I'd be standing here. And who knows where we're going to be a year from now. Um, we're sort of happy in here. Outside is the blasted hellhole wasteland of Trump land, which we're going to inhabit. Um, but who knows what's going to happen a year from now. Um, and because I'm still promoting the book, people have been like, do you have any words about the election? I'm like, not really. I'm sort of stunned. And then um, I hit upon something that was making me feel better. And I guess it was, um, I think, hopefully applicable to other folks. You know, uh, be kind to everybody. Um, make art. And fight the power. That seemed like a good formula. Uh, for me, anyway. Um, 
so BMF. And if you have trouble remembering that, a good mnemonic device to tell yourself is they can't break me because I'm a bad motherfucker. Thank you. So less than two weeks after the election, you were on the stage at the National Book Awards ceremony and, you know, right outside folks were protesting in the streets about the, um, the election. And can, can you just talk a little bit about what you said that night? Well, I mean, um, uh, if you're writing from a left or a progressive point of view, the election was, was a big blow. And so how do you respond? Mm -hmm. How do you respond? Do you protest? Do you give money to organizations? Do you write? Do you become a politician? So I think everyone has a different <laughs> response of how they want to uh, contribute right. or uh, make a statement. And I'm a writer, so I'm going to attack the world in the current situation in my, in my work. Um, I think right. it's sort of uh, up to everyone to sort of figure out what they are sort of called to do, you know, in times right. like this. And so I'm a writer, right. so I'll write. So do you feel yourself engaging in in sort of uh, the political environment more now than before or, or just uh, have you found yourself sort of seeking an outlet for this, you know, uh, response to what's happening? Well, I mean, it's still, I'm, you know, I'm really still processing and still shocked. I mean, uh, yeah, sure. so, uh, yeah. you know, I, I think in some ways just a return to that very adversarial mode I had when I was a teenager with Reagan and the first Bush. And then in my 30s with uh, the second Bush regime, and um, and perhaps that's just the natural way that countries work. You know, they turn one way, turn the next way, and then the deplorable political situation takes more or less space up in your brain. So, right. um, uh, you know, it's too early to know how it will affect my work. You know, people ask about the Underground Railroad. Was it influenced by Black Lives Matter? And it's like, no, it's just... Uh, I was writing my thing and happened to come out at a certain time. I think that my next mm -hmm. book can help but be shaped in some ways by what's going on just because it's so much more immediate and every day. So we'll see. Right. And, and you know, you mentioned um, writing The Underground Railroad during in this era of Black Lives Matter. And, you know, unfortunately, this it's nothing new, right? I mean, this this kind of thing has been happening with police brutality and... and uh, yeah, you know. no, I mean, that's, you know, the yeah. attitude of law enforcement towards black people it's a violent attitude, sometimes people right. attitude. It's, something, it's a feature of American life for me since you know I hit puberty and shot up after shot up over five feet and became yep. a, visual, a visual threat. And, and so you know the stuff I was writing about in the book was divorced from this you know one of our periodic eruptions of conversation about police brutality. I mean, it's right. in there, but it wasn't you know I think not in some not because of what happened in Ferguson or what was happening. In the months after right. that, um, you know, what I'm writing out in the book and what the folks of Black Lives Matter are talking about are both features of America. And so in that way, they're tied in terms of inspiration, I would say, for this, for this particular book, I would say now. Yeah. But of course, you know, one can hope that uh, that your book and, and others uh, will, um, you know, sort of push the conversation forward, too, of course. And well, people are pretty stupid, but we can always hope, I guess, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um so what are you? What are your plans now? Are you working on something new, or I mean, you've been on a on a huge uh, reading tour, and um, it, it is slowing down now. And I think just in terms yeah. of decompressing and figuring out the next thing, I'll, I'll give it a few months, and then in the spring, sort of figure out what what the best next project is. But definitely no hurry, and definitely have to come out of uh, 
public mode, I guess you could call it, <laughs> and, and get back to the hermit mode, which I you know, right. relish and feel comfortable with. Okay, well, uh, Colson, I, w- I wish you the best of luck. It's an amazing book, uh, and I really appreciate you, um, you know, taking a few minutes to talk with me. And um, best of luck with with everything. No, thanks, man. Yeah, it brings me back I'm, to the old days, sixteen years, years ago. ago. That was. Yeah. <laughs> All right, take care. All right. Thanks, Colson. Bye. One of the authors featured in page one this issue is the one and only Roxanne Gay, who is the author of the novel An Untamed State and the New York Times bestselling essay collection Bad Feminist. She has a new collection of stories coming out from Grove Press in January called Difficult Women. So we asked Roxanne to read a little bit from her new book, and here she is with an excerpt of the story, Florida. The adjustment had been uncomfortable. All her life, Marcy had lived in the Midwest with people who ate red meat and starchy foods who allowed their bodies to spread without shame. And then her husband was transferred to Naples. Marcy's mother said, Naples, like in Italy? And Marcy said, no, Florida. And her mother said, oh dear. The women in Naples all looked the same, lean and darkly tan, their faces narrow with hungered discipline whittled by the same surgeon. They stared at Marcy's relatively ample physique with disgust or envy or something between the two. At night, Marcy worried about her ass and thighs. Her husband always said, baby, you are perfect, and she flushed angrily. His assurances were so reflexive as to be insulting. In Omaha, they lived in a neighborhood. In Naples, they moved into a gated community, Palmetto Landing, where each estate was blandly unique and sprawling. Tall facades, lots of glass and balustrades around the windows, Spanish tiles on the roofs, the streets cobbled with tiny square bricks. The first time they drove up to the gatehouse, manned by a white-haired gentleman in polyester, Marcy leaned forward to study the landscaping, tall cypresses encircled by Peruvian lilies looming over the guardhouse. She sighed, said, this is a bit much. Her husband said, baby, people love the illusion of safety and the spectacle of enclosure. They were given barcoded stickers for their cars. Their community had a country club. They joined because the transfer came with a promotion and a raise. Marcy's husband said it was important to live up to their new station. He mostly wanted to play golf with men whose bellies were fatter than his. In Palmetto Landing, the men's bodies expanded in inverse proportion to those of their wives. Each morning, there was a group fitness class at the clubhouse. Spinning, Zumba, kickboxing, always something different. The instructor was a young, aggressively fit woman, Caridad. The other wives loved to say her name, trilling their R's to show Caridad ellas hablan español. Marcy stood in the back of the studio in sweatpants and an old t-shirt of her husband's, while the women around her perspired in their perfectly coordinated outfits, fancier than most of Marcy's wardrobe. Marcy enjoyed the pleasant soreness as she drove the five blocks home after each class. She liked for how an hour there was a precise set of instructions she was meant to follow, a clear sense of direction. The other wives were quietly fascinated by Marcy in that she was a rare species in the wealthy enclave, a first wife. 
Ellen Katz, who lived three doors down, often squeezed Marcy's shoulder with her cool, bony hand. She'd say, we're rooting for you, and offered words of encouragement as Marcy's figure slimmed. Marcy never knew what to say during these moments, but she smiled politely because she understood these people and how they existed only in relation to those around them. And that's it for episode 11. What do we got uh, coming up next? We have Poets Runners Live in San Francisco. We have a two-day program on inspiration, January 14th and 15th at the San Francisco Art Institute. Soma Sharif, one of our debut poets, will be joining us, Mm -hmm. along with Juan Philippe Herrera, Jonathan Franzen, Kay Ryan, Jane Hirschfield, so many people, Susan Orlean. Uh, it's going to be very inspiring. Mm-hmm. And tickets are still on sale. If you go to pw.org forward slash live, you can uh, get some for yourself. That's right. And we also have our writer's retreats issue coming up March, April. We do. So if you feel the need to, uh, you know, escape for a while. <laughs> and, uh, who, and who doesn't, really? And who, and who doesn't. <laughs> we, have, uh, we have some information for you on that. That's right. So um, tune in next time. Sam percent. The Poets and Writers Podcast. Sand is a production of Poets and Writers, Inc., the nation's largest nonprofit organization serving creative writers. Ampersand is edited and mixed by Melissa Falavino. Music for this episode was provided by Poddington Bear, Broke for Free, Junior 85, Dark Sun, and the Pandoras. Find out more about Poets and Writers Live and get tickets to our next event in San Francisco at pw.org forward slash live. Subscribe to Ampersand on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, or through our website, where you'll find photos, articles, and ephemera for each episode, including extended interviews and more original audio from our debut poets at pw.org forward slash ampersand. We also have an essay by Melissa Phoebos, who's a memoirist. Uh, memoirist? Memoirist. It should be memoirist. Memoirist. No, it shouldn't be. <clears throat> memoirer. Memoir. Her memoir. Her memoirs. <laughs> <laughs> Can't you see I'm writing my memoir?